0: Well, good morning. Um, we find ourselves today in this penultimate letter in the series from the Book of Revelation, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And as we're coming towards the end of this series, I thought it might be quite a good time to just have a brief reminder of what it is we're actually reading. So let me read the very prologue, the beginning of the book to you, because it's been a while since we've heard it. It says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So this is a message from God revealed by Jesus to John, and it's for the seven churches and it's for us to hear and to take to heart. And we're blessed when we read it and when we take note of what it says. Now, these seven letters are written to seven specific historical churches, and we must read them first in that context but they are also intended to be read by the worldwide church in every time and in every place. And these letters hold up a kind of mirror to us in our churches today. If you have a Bible, you might want to have it open at the bit we're looking at in Revelation chapter 3. So you can look at some of the details as we go along. Now, when I studied French for my GCSEs, um, this was back in the early 1990s, uh, we spent quite a long time learning how to write formal letters in French. Now, I appreciate this will seem totally ridiculous to anyone under the age of 30, but most of these letters were for the purpose of booking hotel rooms. (laughs) Now, can you believe that in those days, there was no such thing as booking.com or Airbnb? In fact, uh, most people didn't even really have access to the Internet. So we had to learn the proper way of addressing the recipient of the letter, how to set it out, and then how to sign it off. The hardest bit I was found to get the hang of and to memorize was the signing off bit at the end. Um, It seemed to roughly translate as something like, I beg you, dear sir, to please accept my most distinguished felicitations, or, or something like that. It felt rather highfalutin, but I can't help but think in our modern world of email and tweets that we've lost a little bit of the elegance of the personally written letter. Now, in the same way as my GCSE French booking hotel requests, the letters to the seven churches each follow the same pattern. By this stage in the series, we have become familiar with the pattern, and it sets up an expectation of what is coming. However, this letter has a couple of surprises that stand out because they deviate from the usual pattern. So each letter starts with to the messenger of the church in, or sometimes it says to the angel of the church in. And then we have the words of, and that's followed by an illustration of the character of Jesus. Now, in all of the letters so far, this description of Jesus has been drawn from John's earlier vision of him. So it said things like the one who holds the seven stars, the one who has the double-edged sword, the one who is the first and the last. These are all images that are featured in that first vision that John has of, of Jesus in his glory. But in this letter, it's a bit different, and we get an Old Testament reference to consider. More on that in a bit. The next part always goes, I know your works. So Jesus says to the church, I know what you've been doing. And this is generally the bit where Jesus makes observations about what is going well in the church. And then there's a but or a however. We're braced for this but because um, some of the buts in the previous letters have been actually quite scary. Uh, and you can imagine the original audience in Philadelphia holding their breath at this point. But in this week's letter, there is no but And only the churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna have no specific criticism or rebuke from Jesus. And then the latter part of each letter has encouragements about what what the church should keep doing. And then finally there's a promise which says to the one who conquers or to the one who is victorious. And then each letter closes with uh, the same exhortation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's our cue to remember that this is for us too. So when we read these letters, we've got to do a bit of work to be able to understand and grasp the whole meaning. Jesus includes some cryptic clues, which are a little bit like in-jokes. If you don't know the background, you won't get the punchline. I was thinking a bit about what this might be like if Jesus wrote one of these letters to Dorchester Community Church. Perhaps there'd be some sort of clever reference to um, tarmaced car parks or a one-liner about the Prince of Wales. If you're not familiar with the history of DCC, then these would be totally lost on you. But if you could look up a Wikipedia page on the history of Dorchester Community Church, you'd find the story of the old chapel in Ackland Road being demolished and a car park being laid on the site, and you'd find the history of our new building being opened by Prince Charles'. So, let's learn just a little bit about the ancient city of Philadelphia, so then we can understand more clearly some of the content of this letter. Philadelphia means brotherly love, and this is because the founder of the city, the Greek king Attalus II, dedicated it very nicely to his brother, Eumenes II. Philadelphia stood on elevated ground in a highly fertile and volcanic area. Now, this city experienced such regular earthquakes that many of the inhabitants chose to live outside the city walls in the countryside to avoid being squashed by falling pillars during earthquakes. Now, when James and I spent a year working in New Zealand, we experienced an earthquake while staying in Christchurch. We were in a modern earthquake-resistant hotel built on elastic rubber foundations. We didn't actually know that at the time, but we found that out later But I can totally understand the terror that regular earthquakes could instill in a population and why you might choose to live well away from tall stone buildings. In fact, in AD 17, Philadelphia was totally destroyed by an earthquake. The generous Roman emperor Tiberius gave the city a complete tax break and he refunded the building of the city. In gratitude, the inhabitants came to name it Neo-Caesarea or Caesar's New City. The city was situated in an important border area at the gateway to Central Asia Minor, and it was founded with the purpose of being a hub from which Greek culture could be disseminated. In fact, it was so successful at this, it became known as Little Athens. You could say that Philadelphia was a missionary town for Greek culture. The Roman cult of emperor worship was very much alive in Philadelphia, and the emperor was even awarded the title the Son of the Holy One. Now, straight away, this sheds a little bit of light on the way that Jesus identifies himself to this church. He says that he is the holy one, the real one, and the true one, not the emperor. The description Jesus uses for himself here is the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, this is a reference or a quote drawn directly from the book of Isaiah in chapter 22. In this passage, the prophet Isaiah tells of the time that King Hezekiah gave his servant, Eliakim, authority over the house of David, including all of the king's treasures. Having the key to something meant having full administrative authority over it. Now, as it turned out, Eliakim wasn't able to handle the weight of this responsibility in the end, but Jesus here is declaring the himself to be the one with the full administrative authority over the house of David. That is to say, the kingdom of the Messiah. So what does Jesus observe about this church and what does he have to say to them? He says that he knows their deeds and that he has placed before them an open door. So what is this open door? There's a few possibilities Paul, the apostle Paul often speaks of the open door as an opening to share the gospel. For example, in Colossians chapter four, he says, uh, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. The image of the open door is also sometimes used to describe the opening of people's minds and hearts to receive the gospel. For example, in Acts chapter 14, uh, we read, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So in this city of Greek missionary culture activity, we could say that Jesus has opened a door into his kingdom for this church and he has opened a door of opportunity for the missionary work of his kingdom. What else does Jesus observe about this church? He says that he knows they only have a little strength. In human terms, they are few and they are weak. And perhaps he, this is a reference to the fact they maybe were living out scattered in the countryside. But in spite of this, he also sees that they are faithful and they have not denied him in the face of persecution and opposition. And here, just like in the letter to Smyrna, Jesus refers to those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Jesus here is referring to those who were ethnically Jewish and physically circumcised and members of the synagogue. But these Jews had assumed that they were safe in their identity as God's children, even though they had rejected Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus has similar strong words to say to the Jews of his day who had not understood his teaching and who would eventually seek to kill him. In fact, he calls them children of the devil. Jesus makes it very clear that the true children of God are those who hear his words and believe them. The Apostle Paul was a former zealous Arch Jew, and he makes a similar paradigm-busting statement in Romans chapter 3 when he says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So ethnicity and physical acts like circumcision do nothing to guarantee membership of the covenant people of God. This is solely based on belief and faith. Jesus commends this church for patiently enduring persecution from these outwardly religious people who were actually opposed to God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, there are quite a few references uh, or prophecies about a future time when the Gentiles would come and bow at the feet of the people of Israel. And in a strange twist, we now see Jesus predicting the time when false Jews will come and bow at the feet of the true children of God, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus urges the church to hold fast to what they have so that no one takes their crown of life. They have kept Jesus' word, and now he promises to keep them. What else does he promise them? He says they will be protected from a coming time of trial. Now, this is generally understood to be a future time of great suffering that the world will face. The timing and nature of this great tribulation is a matter of intense debate and way beyond the scope of this message today. So I'm going to leave that at that for now. Jesus said he will come to this church suddenly. The word soon is actually best translated as quickly or suddenly rather than in a short time period. Even though things are very tough for this church and for this weak group of people, Jesus reminds them that he is able to change situations in the blink of an eye. And Jesus tells them that to those who conquer, that is, those who keep going and resist the temptation to give in to persecution, they will be made into pillars in God's temple. They will be steady, immovable, and totally safe in God's presence. Now, to a group of people who lived in huts in the countryside for fear of falling masonry in the earthquake-prone city, this would have been a poignant promise. So faithful believers will reign with Jesus in the new kingdom Secure, strong, and established. Jesus also promises these believers three new names, and three was one of those numbers of, of sort of completeness and of um, uh, the sort of ho- the holy Trinity of names he gives them. Uh, he promises them the, new, the name of God, showing that they belong to God and are safe in God's presence. The name of God's new city, Jerusalem, and I think that maybe is a dig at Caesar's new city, and also Jesus' new name. That's quite intriguing. We're not told what Jesus's new name is, but the overall message is that these faithful believers will be utterly safe and they will belong wholeheartedly to God. At this point we're going to pause and uh, the band are going to lead us in a song that reminds us that our God is unchanging and always worthy of our praise. Whether we're in a season of sunshine or in a time of darkness, whether we're feeling strong or weak, I can imagine the church in Philadelphia singing along to these words wholeheartedly. And after we've sung this song, we'll turn to the question of what Jesus wants to say to us today through this letter. So we've thought about Jesus's message to the church in Philadelphia, and what message does Jesus have to us uh, through us to, uh, through this letter today? Well, just as he says to the Philadelphians, Jesus says to us, "Hold fast." Keep going and keep your focus. Most importantly, we should not be intimidated or surprised when opposition comes, and we should never think that we are too small or too weak to make a difference in the kingdom of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says in the famous Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the upside down kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last first. Paradoxically, weakness turns out to be a strength. The Apostle Paul had these struggles with the thing he referred to as the thorn in his flesh. Whatever it was, he asked God three times for it to be removed. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Bible is full of cautions about being wise or strong in our own eyes. In fact, this is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. The tendency that all human beings have to choose their own wisdom over the wisdom of their creator to choose to define good and evil for ourselves instead of allowing God to teach us the truth. This leads to idolatry, that is, making anything or anyone other than God the focus of our heart's worship. Our pride and our egos can get in the way so much that God has to permit us to go through times when we exhaust our own resources, and only then do we see the limitless resources he offers us if we will only turn to him. In the opening section of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds his readers that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. When we are in a position of weakness, we cannot boast in our own strength, When God works through our weaknesses, we have no choice but to acknowledge that all the credit and all the glory belongs to him. Throughout the Bible, God persistently chooses the underdog, the weaker one, the second in line, the less obvious choice to bring his purposes about. He works through Leah and Ruth and Gideon and Joseph and the shepherd boy David and Mary and Timothy Others he has to bring to a point of weakness so they cannot boast in their own strength. He humbles Jonah and King David and Saul. We should take comfort from the gentleness with which God deals with us when we reach these low and weak points in our lives. One of my favorite promises from the book of Isaiah is this description God gives of the servant to come. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you sometimes feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? I know I do sometimes. Following Jesus and holding fast to his word can be really hard. And when it feels like it would be easier to just give in, to conform to the world around and to choose the wider road, don't give up. When you feel useless or hopeless or weak, don't give up. In fact, it's sometimes only when we've reached the end of our own rope that God can really work through us and his strength is sufficient for us. The letter of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia is for every small church that looks at their circumstances and their resources and feels totally inadequate, but trusts God, keeps going, and keeps faithfully declaring the message of God's kingdom. This letter is for every vicar and pastor and small group leader who feels weak and ineffective, but believes Jesus and keeps going anyway. This letter is for every person who is the only member of their family or workplace, or school class, to believe in Jesus, who doubts their ability to continue in the face of opposition, but who chooses to follow Jesus and holds fast to his word. Jesus says, your reward is great in his kingdom. It strikes me that through this letter, we see repeated contrasts of true and false. The true Messiah standing up against the false emperor God, the true children of Israel through faith, In opposition to the false children of Israel by heritage. The Bible presents this binary theme running throughout creation of light and darkness, life and death, good and evil, those who are for Jesus and those who are not. Even those who consider themselves to be neutral because they haven't actively chosen another God are in effect opposed to Jesus. Jesus says, You're either living in God's kingdom or you're still under the rule of Satan in his kingdom whether you realize it or not. So this is our challenge and this is our mission, to live as citizens of God's kingdom, not Satan's, and to point others to that door that still stands open. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and offered to hand them over to Jesus if he would only abandon his task and submit to Satan. Jesus faced the test that all humans face, whether to choose what God declares to be good or whether to define what is good for ourselves. We lost our place as co-rulers of creation with God because we failed the test, but Jesus passed it. So the message of the whole book of Revelation is that Jesus has conquered Satan and has been given the authority that is rightfully his. He holds the keys of the house of David and the keys to the kingdom of God. Jesus alone has authority to grant entry into his kingdom. Our entry into this kingdom requires no feats of strength or demonstrations of ability on our part. In fact, the very opposite is true. In order to enter through this narrow door, we must only recognize our utter weakness to save ourselves and choose to follow him. Jesus outwitted the powers of darkness when he triumphed over them on the cross, He chose to take on the role of the servant, emptying himself of his glory and lowering himself to the point of death on the cross. When he was utterly weak, then he was gloriously strong. Our call is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, choosing to die to our old nature, choosing to serve rather than be served, choosing to be foolish and weak in the eyes of the world. Then we join him in inviting others into his new creation, the kingdom of the Lamb. In his final earthly words to his disciples, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. The door is still open. Jesus' commission still stands, and he is still with us. So, are you in? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You have shown us that the way down is the way up. The way of humility and weakness is the path to true strength. Help us to follow in your footsteps and enter through the narrow door that leads to life. And give us the strength we need to proclaim your good news to those who are on the broad and easy road that leads to death. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.